Dear God, we thank you that we can be here this morning, and we just pray for the presence of your Spirit. Amen. Uh, fixing faulty faith is what I, I call this, this message, and I'm being kind there because uh, James doesn't call it faulty faith. He calls it dead faith, which is a little bit worse. Um, so I, I'm trying to be, be kind, uh, which I think is important. So uh, let, let's just take it from there. Um, James is known for being different to Paul. So there's an apparent contradiction between uh, Paul and James. Uh, it's been suggested that James even contradicts Paul's doctrine of the atonement, Paul's idea of justification by faith. And, and this idea is quite easy to understand if you just read a few quotes from Paul. So Romans 3.20 says, No one will be declared righteous by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. Verse 21, But now righteousness from God apart from the law has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. The righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. And you can just keep reading down. Eventually you get down to Romans 3, verse 27 and 28, where it says, Where then is the boasting? It is excluded. On what principle? On that of observing the law? No. But on that of faith. We maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from observing the law. That's Paul. And then you leap into James and you find James 2 verse 14 and you can read on. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith but do not have works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and lacks daily food and one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and eat your full. And yet you do not supply their bodily needs. What good is that? So faith by itself, if it has not works, is dead. Well, you know, you don't need to think about it too hard to see there's a contradiction between these two. They don't seem to be saying the same thing. Paul seems to say we are saved through faith and not by the good things we do. James seems to say that if you don't do good deeds, you can't be saved. But I'd like to suggest that they're not contradicting one another, they are actually talking about different things. To put it simply, Paul is talking about good faith and James is talking about bad faith. So because they're talking about different things, it seems like they disagree, but it's actually they're just coming at the same thing from a differing perspective. When Paul says that righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ, to all who believe, he's talking about a faith in Jesus Christ. This is relational because Jesus is a person and not a thing. This faith that Paul talks about depends on uh, acknowledgement, acceptance, and ultimately love for Jesus. This faith is made possible by the grace of God, which is why Paul says in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for it is by grace you have been saved, through faith, and this not from yourselves, it's a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. So this grace produces a faith 
that results in obedience to the law, but the obedience to the law is not the thing that saves you. It is the thing you do because you are saved. It's a consequence. And when you look at it in Paul, it has no salvific, that's salvation, component to it. So while he maintains that obedience to the law does not save, Paul also points out in Romans 3.31, do we nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. James, of course, comes at this from another perspective. He is not looking at the faith of the one who believes in Jesus and his goodness. He is examining the faith of the one who has been amazed by the grace of God. He is talking, of, he is talking about faith but of the faith that has made no difference to the believer's life. So what is James talking about? He is talking about a kind of delusional faith, a faulty faith, or in his words, a dead faith. So James can therefore say, faith without works is dead because your faith is a lot of nonsense. In fact, James says an amazing thing. In James 2 verse 19, he says, You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. And now, I did a little bit of research on this point because it's a bit of a puzzling passage. And this idea of Faith in accordance with Jewish tradition is something called emuna, which you don't need to know. But it's an assertion of monotheism. That's belief in one God. You believe there is one God, James says. Good. You do well. We know that faith for Paul is personal trust in God through Jesus Christ. But here in James, it's not that. You believe that God is one. You do well. It is good that they believe there is one God. Why? Because it's true. However, James quickly points out that it is not to their credit that they believe this. Because even the demons believe that and shudder. When James talks about faith or belief in this way, he is not suggesting that the believer has a trust or faith in this one God of monotheism any more than the demons do. He is talking about faith as an orthodox opinion. Let me elaborate a little bit here. Orthodoxy, you've probably heard that word bandied around before, but all it really means is a consensus of faith of a particular community. In the Seventh-day Adventist church, orthodoxy is defined in the 28 fundamental beliefs. If you open your church manual or you go online and you look up the 28 fundamental beliefs, that's what describes a Seventh-day Adventist. That is orthodox Seventh-day Adventism. When someone is baptized into the church, they go through a series of baptismal studies that educate the candidate in Adventist orthodoxy. If the candidate accepts these doctrinal statements of faith, then they may be baptized as a Seventh-day Adventist. This is why baptism is accompanied by a profession of faith. Do you believe these things? 
The, the candidate is required to acknowledge that they do indeed believe in the Sabbath, the second coming, the state of the dead, the sanctuary, and so on. This is what is meant by Orthodox Seventh-day Adventism, and if you don't believe it, you can't be baptized into the church. However, and this is the, the tricky thing, or the rub, as Shakespeare said, it is possible to believe all of these things and not actually be in Christ. To put this another way, you can believe all these things and still be lost. I remember when I joined the, the SDA church and I was baptized in 1991, I was in my, I was about 30-ish at the time. I accepted all the beliefs. But a couple of months after I was baptized, I spoke to my pastor, the man who'd led me to, to, to the church, um, Pastor Gary Grant. And I said to him, I believe all these things. I accept the Sabbath and all those other beliefs you taught me in that Daniel and Revelation seminar, but I have a problem. And he said, oh, what's that? I said, I don't love God. That sounds pretty bad, doesn't it? I didn't realize it at the time, but looking back with a bit of understanding, I think what I was basically saying was, I believe all the fundamental beliefs of the church, but I still feel lost. The thing is, every Adventist knows that joining the church is not the same thing as salvation. We may believe the fundamental beliefs, that is, we think we are right. We have the opinion that the church is right. We believe all these things. This is what James is saying. You believe that there's one God, good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You can see where I'm going with this, right? In the world of James, it was largely a world of polytheism, multiple gods. The Greeks had their gods, the Romans had their gods, the Egyptians had their gods, many gods. So when James suggests that his audience believe that there is one God, he says, excellent, you do well. That is a step up, at least, from believing in Zeus and Hades and Aphrodite, but it's not enough. I think many of us, and it is impossible to know who, many of us are lost in orthodoxy. We are convinced that we are right about the doctrinal facts that can be extracted from Scripture. It is a belief in these things that gives us confidence that we are saved, that we are okay with God. I believe in the Sabbath. I believe that Jesus will come again. And to prove it, I go to church. And if I'm really feeling it, I'll go to Sabbath school as well. I'm an Adventist. I'm baptized. As a denomination, we are right. And as far as salvation is concerned, I'm good to go. This is what I would call lost in orthodoxy. You believe all these things. Good. Well done. They're true. Even the demons believe that and shudder. 
Lost in orthodoxy is to accept all the fundamental beliefs, to accept something that we might call the Adventist religion. So what are the good deeds you do once you believe all these things? Well, we do the lesson study, we go to church on the right day, and we talk to our friends who believe the same as us and convince each other how right we all are, and we end up with this internal dialogue of small people that just agree with each other. But we're no good to anybody out there. We're not, we've just got our orthodox opinions and we share them. Remember, James is talking to people who are members of the church. He is writing to believers. They believe things that God is one. But he calls their faith dead. To be lost in orthodoxy is what James calls dead faith. Yes, we believe things, but it has not led to a converted heart. The faith is not accompanied with righteous behavior. Hence, James can say, faith without works is dead. The problem is the faith. So what sort of deeds is James calling for? What is he saying? I think it is helpful to realize that a big part of James's criticisms are directed at people who have means. There is a warning to the rich throughout his epistle. Now, I realize that anyone who is a salaried person cannot really be classed as rich. There are some salaried people who do better than others, but if you have an income, you sort of make it. And I don't rub shoulders with people who are rich in that sense, but I think that it is fair to say that there is a difference between someone who is in poverty and someone who is self-sufficient. And if James is talking to anyone, he is talking to the people who have means, who have a salary, who have jobs, who are supported and don't have to worry where their next meal is coming from. That's who he's talking to. Um, to contextualize it for us, because he uses this word, this word rich. And it's all, through, it's all through his book. In James 1 verse 11, he says, the rich man will fade away even while he goes about his business. In James 5, he directly attacks the wealthy. Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming upon you. And then there's a call to care for the less fortunate, James 1.27, care for orphans, care for widows. James 2 verse 6, you have dishonored the poor. James 2 verse 8, you do well if you really keep the royal law of scripture. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. James 4 verse 17, anyone then who knows the right thing to do and fails to do it commits sin. And then in James 5 verse 4, Listen, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, you didn't even pay them, cry out 
and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. But most importantly, there's a direct reference to the type of deeds that should accompany faith. James 2 verse 14, I read this earlier. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith but do not have works? Can faith save him? And these two rhetorical questions have clear answers. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Well, it's no good. Can such faith save him? Clearly not. Then we are given the action or the type of deeds that James is expecting from genuine faith. And this is immediately after James 2 verse 14 and James 2 verse 15 and 16. If a brother is naked and lacks daily feed, food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm, and eat your full, and yet you do not supply their bodily needs, what is the good of that? So faith by itself, if it has not works, is dead. You know, James had a sense of humor, you can see. Um, he's having a go, but in a kind of nice way. Um, and he's drawing attention to what Christian living at its root, at its core, is all about. And that is caring for people. You know... Um, it's wonderful that you can manage to have um, the service streamed online. But I'd, I'd like to make a point here, if I may, that if you're online and watching, that's fantastic. Hello, when I teach classes, I, I do dual mode. So it's like this is dual mode, speaking to you in person here, and yet I'm speaking to the camera, which is not in person, it's online. And I do the same with my classes because of the pandemic. Some people are at home and some people are in class. But when we moved back to class, when there were some students, and that happened this semester, when they moved back to class, it made the world of difference to me as a teacher because suddenly I could see the presence of students before me and it invigorated me. And I realized I need these students here so I can talk to them. And if you're online, we miss you here. We, we miss you. If you can be here, wonderful. We need your smiles. We need your words of encouragement. And, and the church needs you. Um, and so we really, really miss you. I know this from my own personal experience. And it's that touch, that human touch, that is at the heart of Christianity. And James is saying, look, when someone comes to you and you look into their eyes, hear them, see them, do what you can. Yeah, very often we can't help people to the degree that they need. But you can, I'll tell you, a kind word is, is an incredible thing. Um, yeah. I think it is possible to come away after reading the book of James and think, my faith is fine. I believe all the right things. What I need is to add works. So my faith is perfect. James doesn't say that. But you think that. My faith is good. My problem is that I'm not doing enough good deeds. 
So I need to give more to charity. I need to give more tithe. I need to give more to the poor. And that will make my faith right. And I'd like to say that if you do that, that's great, good. We need more good deeds. After all, a chief concern in the book of James is that there are poor people who are in trouble and there are rich people who could help, could help them out. By spurring the wealthy into action, this could at least feed the poor people. However, theologically, that is with regard to their relationship with God, James is not suggesting that a life that is devoid of good deeds is solved by tacking on good deeds. The root of the problem is not that people are not doing, doing good deeds. The root of the problem is bad faith, or more exactly, in the words of James, dead faith. It is this dead faith that needs to be addressed and made alive. So faith by itself, says James, if it has no works, is dead. So what is James saying about salvation? Is he really suggesting a legalistic doctrine of salvation that is different to what Paul says? The clue is found in the verses that James mentions the name Jesus Christ. Now, I did a word search on this, and you know how many times James mentions the name of Jesus in his book? Twice. Twice. Only twice. That's not very often. Um, and the first one is in James 1 verse 1, where James identifies himself. It says simply, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. So he tells you who he is, and he identifies himself by Jesus Christ. And then I went to the other place, <coughs> excuse me, where which actually occurs exactly one chapter later in James 2 verse 1. And I think the key is found here. I'll read various translations of this verse because it has a very interesting distinction in a couple of translations. But King James says, My brethren, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respect of persons. Now, I need to be honest with you here. I don't know what that means. I read it and I thought, I don't know what that means. And I have to admit to you here and now that my Shakespeare was never that good. <laughs> you know. So, you know, 1611 is just too long ago for me, so I needed some other translations. So I went to NASB. This is the, the book that our Greek and Hebrew lecturer recommends, a translation he recommends. That's a New American Standard Bible. Um, and it says this, My brothers and sisters, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. Now that, that I kind of understand. And then the New Living Translation, My dear brothers and sisters, how can you claim to have faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ if you favor some people over others? And then the New Revised Standard Version, which is the Bible I have with me, um, and I just happened to have this. This actually belonged to my mother-in-law who's since passed. 
And um, I just pulled it off the shelf and saw her name in the beginning. I thought, oh, that's interesting. And I wanted another translation. This was the one I read. And it actually phrases it as a question. It says, my brothers and sisters, do you with your acts of favoritism really believe in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ? And that, that, that's sort of now putting you on the spot. It's saying, listen, with all the favoritism and the favorites that you've got around here in this place, how can you also believe in Jesus and have that attitude to other people? And I thought, wow, that's interesting. Now, there's a reason, by the way, why they'd the one puts it as a question, and, and, and many of them, most of the others don't, but there's a number that do put it as a question. The reason is that a little bit later there's a parallelism in James 2 verse 14 where there's a question. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith but do not have works? And it has been suggested by Bible translators that this is a motif or an idea that James uses where he starts by asking a question and then he answers it and then he, and he does it again. So it's a kind of parallelism. Um, but these are debates for those scholars to talk about. But what I, it doesn't mean anything different. I just thought that the question brings it up in our minds. So that as you read it, you realize that what James is saying is, do you really believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you really believe in him? When you behave this way, do you really believe in Jesus Christ? And it sort of made it clear to me as I was reading. I just let this question sit in my mind as I was reading through James. Do you really believe in Jesus Christ? And of course, the way James structures his chapter the answer is clearly no. Not if you're behaving in this way. He shows logically that their faith is not in Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is not a living faith. It is a dead faith. But dead faith doesn't transform faith in Jesus Christ by adding a few good deeds. Yes, the works need to be fixed. There must be good works. But this is accomplished by fixing the faith. This is why James begins his argument with the fundamental Christian question, do you really believe in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ? It is the key, key question. The question that is not only at the heart of Pauline uh, writings, but the whole New Testament. Consider John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And James is asking the same question. But he's saying, you know how I know you don't believe in him? Because look at the way you treat your brother. It is a question that we need to ask ourselves. Can I, like James, identify myself with the following words? That begin James's epistle in chapter 1, verse 1, where he identifies himself as a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. This faith, the faith in Jesus, 
This is the faith that works. May God bless you.